Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. With us today is Jasmine Nahida, who's a licensed clinic clinical social worker. Uh, welcome to Healthcare Untold, Jasmine. Barbara, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here and just have this dialogue with you. And I just have to like let your listeners know that you were my first true OG mentor in my life outside of my uh, family and you know a couple of other folks that I had in my life in high school. But really, when I met you, Barbara, you, um, you saw me and you engaged me and you supported me. And that's continued over the last 25 years. And I'm just forever grateful for you and just your support of me and um, your friendship. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jasmine. That, that, that's really uh, so sweet of you. And, um, you know, it's been, I've been really proud of watching your growth as well. And, um, you know, it's so thank you. It's an honor for you to say those kind, kind words. So, you know, for the listening audience, Jasmine, um, I wanted to um, let them know what a, what is a licensed clinical social worker? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, at the very uh, surface level, a life, licensed clinical social worker is somebody who um, sets out and achieves a graduate degree in social work and then does over 32 hours of supervised clinical training under the guidance of another licensed clinical social worker. And then they have to do exams with the BBS to pass in order to become a licensed clinical social worker. And with that, you know, we work under a certain guidance and um, values around social justice and around, you know, really advocating and fighting for what is right for the people that we serve. And, um, you know, for me, becoming a licensed clinical social worker really has ties back to my great-grandfather in Durango. And I come from a family of people that speak up and speak out and um, really try to do right for other people. And my family really taught me that, um, you know, regardless of where you come from, your, your, your upbringing, like, you know, you really try to work towards becoming um, sorry, work towards really engaging in those opportunities that are in front of you. And so for me, um, my aunts really took an active role in my life. I grew up with a single father. My mom was kind of in and out of our lives. I'm biracial. So my father was came from, you know, our strong Chicano family. And that's really what my roots were. Um, so, you know, my great grandfather was somebody who was known in his small town in Durango that you know, of a helper and people would go to him to get help and he was an advocate. And so I really tie my social justice roots back to my great grandfather through my grandmother and through my tia Alicia and tia Olga and really just this, um, this kind of dedication, this life dedication to help other people. And for me specifically being born and raised in a small town here in Davenport, <clears throat> I, I, I definitely faced barriers um, in my upbringing, but I also had Thias who had gone through um, higher education and really knew what that process was. And so while my high school counselor was telling me, don't bother applying to college, you'll never make it, just go to Cabrillo and take some typing classes. 
Mike Diaz really helped me um, apply and understand the process. And I was accepted to UCSE right after graduate school. And that was one of those moments where it was like, okay, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> here's another opportunity. The door was opened. And I realized that a lot of my friends that I grew up with did not have those same opportunities. And specifically kind of my crew of folks that I was hanging out with in high school definitely did not have those opportunities. And it was confusing to me of why I was able to have folks support me and open that door and show that path. And whereas some of my other friends completely did not have that opportunity. So I was really committed to giving back to the youth in my community. And Mm -hmm. I knew that that Mm -hmm. through social work, you know, I would be able to work directly with youth. So, you know, I moved on I think I graduated from UCSC around 1996 and didn't become a social worker right away. I ended up working, my first job was at Phoenix Services here in Watsonville, and we had a day treatment center for youth involved in the juvenile um, probation department who had been caught up with law enforcement. And so our goal was really to provide wraparound services to those youth to keep them out of custody and keep them in the community with the services and supports that they needed. And that was kind of my first job that that really uh, led me to become a licensed clinical social worker along with like those internal intrinsic values of mine that were instilled by my family. So that's kind of an important uh, piece that you just talked about. Um, One is that you had some mentoring from um, Mm -hmm. your tias who are very famous in the Santa Cruz community, both from um, a, uh, your tia Alicia is a licensed clinical social worker and your other tia was a professor, I believe at uh, UC Santa Cruz. So you had some uh, role models uh, and then also looking at your own peers and then getting some experience um, to kind of really decide that this was the career you wanted to do. So in your head, you might've been wanting to be a social worker, but once you Mm -hmm. really did the work, that kind of helped you um, and give you more um, ganas, so to speak, more um, to really be able to say, okay, this is what my life path will be. Is that, is that well, kind absolutely. Of mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And for those first, you know, I started working in our community. You know, I started volunteering actually when I was in high school with Barrios Unidos way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always been engaged with like youth work. And, um, you know, after I graduated, I worked from about 1996 until about 2003 for Children's Behavioral Health, directly providing services to youth that were in juvenile hall and in the community. But what I realized when you're working for a bureaucratic system like our county behavioral health agencies You know, um, it's very different to work on the line directly with the staff or sorry, with the, um, the individuals that we serve. But, you know, my supervisor and my manager and my director looked completely different than myself in the families that we were serving. And there was a lot of conflict there because back in that day. And even all the way up until today, I think Santa Cruz likes to be identify themselves as a very progressive community. And then you kind of scratch that surface and you see what's really there. So I had a lot of a lot of conflict with that. And it really made me feel like I incredibly value that um, direct client contact that we provide. But I wanted to move up and I wanted to be a supervisor and a manager to ensure that our staff who were doing that direct work had the support and resources to do it. And the understanding from a supervisor who's kind of been there and understands versus somebody who's never really had that one-on-one experience, right? It's very different being born and raised, being from a certain community, and then deciding to give back to that community, right? And that community can look at you and say, oh, you know, no, she, she's, you know, she looks like us. 
she supports us, and that's really important for the individuals that we serve. If they don't see us in the reflection, that's a real problem. Yeah, and I think there's also a role for allies, right? Absolutely. And, and that is the, f- the fact that in many of these institutions, and you and I speak a lot um, over the time that we've known each other about the systematic issues, and, um, you know, the systems itself are made up of people, as I always say, mm-hmm. and um, and then trying to under- have them understand, those who have been in power, um, that how important it is to be reflective of who they serve. And I think that's what you're trying to say as well. Also, absolutely. mm -hmm, And it's so important for somebody who's being served to have people that look like them, just like you said. I think that's a a really, really, really important. So so tell us a little bit about uh, more about what uh, you're doing. You you, because we went up to about 2003 and then you got into (laughs) um, my understanding of your career. You got into uh, working in the jails. Yeah, so um, I left to go to grad school in 2003. I moved to Austin, Texas, uh, go Longhorns. Um, (laughs) You know, I really needed to get a different perspective. And um, I moved out there and I definitely got a different perspective. You know, they say that Austin is incredibly liberal. And I always say, well, it's liberal for Texas. (laughs) Um, But it was an amazing experience for me to really broaden my perspective and understand how to come to the table and collaborate and work with folks that I absolutely did not agree with, nor look like, nor have similar experience with, right? The field of social work students and licensed clinical social, social workers is incredibly broad. Um, and so it was really, uh, it was hard in many ways, and it was a huge growth opportunity and really pushed my own comfort zones in a way that I, at that time, didn't really need or feel like I needed to be pushed. Um, so I spent a couple years out there, and then I came back to uh, the Bay Area and worked for Juma Ventures, which is a social enterprise youth development agency in the city. It was an amazing job. The youth out there were able, they're the ones that kind of sold the the coffee and the ice cream, the Ben and Jerry's ice cream and Toulouse coffee out at the Giant Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a lot of fun, and it was great to support and work with youth that were, you know, kind of had, were on the right path already. But I felt that tug to come back to my community. That was the whole point of why I left. And so in 2006, I returned to Santa Cruz and I had applied for a job um, on the crisis intervention team at our local county jail for adult behavioral health. And I was incredibly, um, on the one hand, you know, working within a jail and alongside uh, our criminal justice partners is something that I've done before. And, you know, I felt like, okay, I could do this. I, I know how to talk that language or kind of uh, surf that environment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's Santa um, Cruz talk, you know. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the flow. The flow. Um, you know, but that was a really interesting experience for me. And that, like I said, I, I was in that field for the last 13 years, basically having worked directly as line staff in our jail doing crisis intervention team, on the crisis intervention team. And then I moved up to supervise that team. And at that point, I was supervising the jail team and then also our outpatient. It's called the MOST team. It's called Maintaining Ongoing Stability Through Treatment. And that's like a collaborative partnership with probation for when our clients, youth uh, individuals that we serve in adult mental health, end up getting involved with um, you know, the legal system and end up in custody. And our role in custody is really to, um, number one, ensure that people are safe 
ensure that their uh, mental health, uh, you know, crises, uh, symptoms um, are addressed. And um, we basically serve anybody in the jail that makes a request to see us. And from way back in 2013 to now, like that has just increased trifle, the numbers that we serve. Unfortunately, the staffing hasn't always increased. It's pretty similar to what it was way back when I first started. It's grown in terms of psychiatry, but that's a huge challenge because, you know, the other perspective of that is those licensed clinical staff that are working in the jail that are housed in that environment under you know, the sheriff's jurisdiction in terms of this is their house and we're providing a service there. And that can at times be in direct conflict with what right. we as social workers really value. And um, my perspective over the more than 13 years that I did that was that I ended up really um, going within and learning how to keep my mouth shut and not bringing things up within that environment very strategically only to certain people or certain officers who I felt safe with and who I felt were really, you know, folks that really wanted to do good and really help people. And there are those officers in, in our jail that do that, you know, right. but, but it's, it really chips away at you and you, you can get incredibly jaded, incredibly sarcastic. And here in Santa Cruz, you know, I think the pro and con is that we're a smaller uh, county but then we tend, you know, when you are working within a jail setting, you don't ever see success. You see people leave and you hope for the best. And hopefully, you know, we've done a good job at connecting them to those services out in the community, which also really have not increased over the years. We really have some some of the same numbers of beds for our mental health clients in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and then we see a lot of the same folks come back. And so when you see the same people come back over and over again, I think from the perspective of like a corrections officer, you know, it gets very easy to just be dismissive of right. their efforts to try to improve their life or make changes or do something different. Um, and for the clinical staff, it also starts to chip away. And I've seen some staff get very jaded over the, the years. And it really reaffirms my belief that if we are going to have clinicians in those areas of working so directly with law enforcement, we really need to support those staff more and transition them around so they're not stuck in those positions where then they become institutionalized. To, institutionalized, yeah. exactly. Right, you know, right, right. When I got out, I really. Um, when you got to, out, is that perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Let I me mean, clarify. Yeah. I've never been incarcerated <laughs> legally, but yeah, exactly. Right? When I moved on from that and, you know, moved on from like the daily meetings that we had at the jail with officers. And, and let me, let me just stop for a second. Yes. Because we did a really good job in our county jail and a really good collaboration with corrections and with medical. Right. And, and that wasn't good enough a lot of times. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And I just think, you know, that's an important perspective because um, you're being uh, hosted. You're in mm -hmm. someone else's home that has mm -hmm. some real strict rules of engagement mm -hmm. for your safety for your mm -hmm. safety, as mm -hmm. well as the officers and for uh, those who are there in jail. Um, 
so, you know, it's a, I know it's a hard environment to work in, and I think you're right. I think it's really important for um, the social workers and probably even um, the probation officers and mm-hmm. the custody officers to really get an, a different experience um, in um, the jails and then have some other experience in the community. So they kind of get, you know, because they'll see some of the same people out in the community right. that they saw in jail, right? And so you know that's a that's a really good point, Barbara, because you know, in our, you know, I've made, you know, I've become friends with some of those uh corrections officers. And there's some really great Absolutely. Latino officers, even you know, there's great officers across the board. And there's great social workers across the board. And within both of those environments, there's folks that maybe are pretty jaded and maybe need to like <laughs> look at somewhere different, right? But we also have this program, our mental health liaisons, and there's about five clinicians, actually seven clinicians throughout our county that are housed in three different jurisdictions and are actually in the cars with officers on a day-to-day basis uh, responding to mental health crises. So if anybody calls for a 5150 welfare check to come and assess if they're, you know, an imminent crisis or if, you know, Whatever that mental health crises might be, we have staff that are out there with those officers to support them in making those decisions, right, around what's best. Let's talk about that a little bit more because, um, you know, as you see this whole issue of defunding police, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know in San Francisco, uh, we've tried to do that. um, And in many cities, um, they're doing um, hiring um, social workers um, Mm -hmm. to sit alongside with police officers. And here you had some um, in response to uh, 5150s. Why don't you explain to the listening audience uh, 5150? Yeah, well, 5150 is part of the Health and Institution Code. And basically, um, anybody who is, well, no, not any licensed clinician, but within our Santa Cruz County, individuals who work for county behavioral health, law enforcement individuals, um, they are able to assess people who are in a mental health crisis um, and really assess for uh, dangerousness to themselves, to others, or um, they're not... They're not able to to themselves, right? To themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And and they don't have the capacity, right, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. um, meet their basic needs to for their food, clothing, and shelter, right? right? And so you have to do a quick assessment, like with these individuals in the moment, and the clinicians and officers really need to use an eye to really um, determine if somebody needs to be taken to our local crisis stabilization center on a 72-hour hold to be assessed for, you know, hospitalization. And so here in our county, if somebody is put on a hold, they're taken to our local um, crisis stabilization program, and that program has up to 24 hours to further provide assessment to determine whether that person should be um, sent to an inpatient hospital or if we can step them down to, um, you know, an appropriate program bed, a crisis stabilization program bed, or family, or some sort of, you know, if they have, if they've kind of de-escalated and we're able to identify those uh, areas and keep them safe, then they might be able to return home. But that's a big, it's a big thing to take somebody's rights away, though, right? right? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's what we really are doing. And obviously, you know, if somebody's life is in imminent danger, then we want to do whatever we can to try to help and intervene. And that takes, you know, a lot of, um, it takes a clinical eye to be able to do that in kind of a good, larger perspective, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we found in San Francisco was that, um, 
the stability or the mental health status of the individual was really impacted by, I mean, you have some individual who could be schizophrenic and having Mm -hmm. some psychotic episode um, Mm -hmm. that could be harm to themselves and others. But then you have those who are on methamphetamine and then that leaves pretty quickly and then all of a sudden they're okay again. And then here we go with that cycle. But it does seem that having um, social workers and clinicians involved with um, community policing is just a new direction and a future direction Mm -hmm. of where we should go um, in helping people get stable. Um, And you think about this pandemic and the impact on people's livelihoods, their mental health status, it just makes a lot more sense that um, Mm -hmm. refunding the police in a different way. And I think if we change that language, you know, because you can have police officers, because I really think that the police officers (coughs) should be more professionals as well. You know, Mm -hmm. they shouldn't just be coming out of high school. They should be really getting some clinical experience and um, in terms of uh, helping the people that they uh, are serving. And many times um, they do not have that. And so I do think that that could be a refunding of police in a different way. I absolutely agree. And I think that we here in Santa Cruz um, have been on that, you know, on that wave already for about the last eight years or so. I believe it was about eight years ago when we first got our first mental health liaison um, assigned to a police department. And, um, you know, my manager back then was Pam Rogers Wyman, who really spearheaded the collaboration and partnership with law enforcement in our community. And I learned so much from her. But for her, really, you know, what our approach was with behavioral health was like, what's that common issue or need or concern that's really coming back in your face every day that you don't feel like is your job, right? And really, we were able to show that, you know, you pay 50% of this position and we'll pay 50% of this position to co-fund it to show that, you know, it's going to benefit really all of us. And ultimately, what we really wanted to do was not have people with mental health issues go to jail if we could prevent that. Obviously, if they did a serious crime, we can't step in and say, oh, they should go to the unit and not here. But we can help facilitate that and really have that conversation with the officers around where the best place is for this person. And our clinicians are very familiar with our community and, and who's in our community that does have behavioral health problems and that, you know, who's known to use methamphetamines and continues to hit our unit. And maybe an appropriate avenue for that is drug treatment versus crisis intervention or whatever that might be. Right. Right. right, And, and, um, you know, the other thing that I wanted to highlight is in terms of what you talked about, the the training is that, you know, law enforcement jurisdictions send officers to a 40-week crisis intervention team training. And that's really in response to uh, being able to support officers in learning what does mental health look like? What do mental health symptoms look like? Like how to respond, really providing like 40 hours of education around mental health and the to-dos and don't-dos and de-escalation. And in our county specifically, what we decided to do, and I think maybe about five years ago, was we partnered with Law Enforcement Behavioral Health and NAMI to work on creating our own crisis intervention team training here in Santa Cruz County for our local law enforcement jurisdictions. Because what our resources are here looks very different to what the resources are in San Jose or San Francisco, right? I mean, we're a much smaller community and we felt it would be a better impact for for us to take the lead 
on providing these trainings to our local partners based on what we have to offer here. That's good. And That's so, good. you know, That's really in, good. yeah. And in the past officers, you know, maybe each jurisdiction would um, choose like maybe four officers a year, give or take to go to this week long training. But since we brought it to them, you know, and so if you're only sending four officers and then with turnover, you know, you're not having like a really consistently trained base of officers. Right. But through this, I believe that we've trained almost all the sworn officers in the county. I would say we're probably about 75% there from the last numbers that I saw. And that's impressive that yes, we can absolutely. say that the majority of our officers have been trained in some sort of, you know, de-escalation, understanding what symptoms look like, understanding medications, psychiatric medications as well, right? Yes. So, and just really letting them know what the resources are and also alleviating them with their really frustrated questions around like, well, what about this? And what about that? And just bringing us together to be able to provide that education and understanding really brings down those walls. And what we found is a lot of those officers, then when they're out, you know, on the streets, even whether they're with our clinicians or not, they just have a different lens to look through. And that's been incredibly helpful. And, you know, like you said, with um, people staying and in, being institutionalized, you know, the professional staff as well, that right. they, the getting, uh, not getting jaded because they can see improvements um, with their yeah. with their clients. And, um, you know, I, I just think it makes them a more effective officer as well, knowing that it, this isn't just lock them up and the, here they come again, right? There's some right. effective, I just have found that that uh, combination. And, you know, we always have those um, from the perspective of your, the mental health providers trying to protect that um, patient's uh, privacy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, the officer is also there at a time of crisis. And um, so sharing that information is going to be inf- uh, really important for the safety of everyone involved. And I just think that having more training for those officers, understanding the impact and the fact that people can get better, Jasmine, I know you know that. Yes. And yes. if the officers see that the person, because they really like many of the people who they're serving, they just mm-hmm. get so frustrated that all they're doing is locking them up. And this, I think, gives them new <clears throat> tools to see people well, getting better. Absolutely. You are so right. And, you know, within our county, we really worked on creating this uh, forensic continuum of care, right? And so that's really identifying the points where we are coming into contact with individuals with mental health illness within the system. And so that really starts with like our downtown outreach workers and our mental health liaisons and our homeless outreach folks that are out there on the streets and see our folks, right? And then if they get arrested, and they end up coming into custody, then those same folks are letting us know in the jail that, hey, so-and-so's coming your way. They've been arrested. They're in crisis. We need to get the psychiatrist to see them and get them restabilized. And then from there, if they are part of our mental health system or, you know, because we, you know, there's very specific criteria for individuals to qualify for county behavioral health services. And that really is for somebody who has impaired functioning, is has a major mental illness. And, you know, we provide services to the Medi-Cal recipient population. So we're not mental health for for everybody in our county, but for that very specific slice of the pie. And so what we tried to do is, okay, well, folks are in jail and they're part of our system. We want to exit them from jail to a full wraparound ACT team. And that's our most team that works in collaboration with probation. So these folks are now placed on formal mental health probation. And then now they have a probation officer 
and a clinician that's working together that understands mental health issues, that understands their struggles. Those probation officers are actually housed at behavioral health. So when our clients and consumers come in, it's a one-stop shop. They see their psychiatrist or their nurse practitioner. They can see their probation officer, their clinician, their therapist. And we really provide that wraparound service. And the end part of that is that we added, um, we worked on establishing a behavioral health court similar to Judge Manley's uh, court over in, in Santa Clara County. We did a lot of visits over there. And under the spearheading of Judge um, Morse, Heather Morse, who was our first female judge here in Santa Cruz County, she's been a huge advocate around individuals with mental health um, symptoms in our jails and really has been fighting to have a behavioral health court for many years. Mm -hmm. And so I was part of that team that put that put that court together initially, not with any extra funding, but it was really just partners, you know, from the um, from the DA's office, from the sheriff's office, from the courts, from behavioral health and from probation, where we really work together to make this happen for our consumers. And so these folks now, when they go back for court reviews, they're not going into the original court where they were sentenced, but they're coming back under one of the, currently it's Judge Guy, um, who, you know, who heads up that um, mental health uh, calendar. And it's much more modeled kind of after a drug court, right, where it's supportive. It's, um, it's you know, recovery oriented. It's all based on their services and their treatment and what's working well. And, you know, then there's a piece of accountability that we all try to support. And um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we try to keep our folks out in the community receiving the services and medications that they need outside of custody. That's great. So for the listening audience, um, um, as a clinician looking into the jail, tell mm-hmm. us what you what 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 does it look like in terms of how many people there um are really shouldn't be there or, mm-hmm. you know, have clinical pieces versus, and you and I talked about this, you know, there, there is a need for some to be in custody for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, terrible things that, that they've done, right? Whether that's mm-hmm. murder or rape mm-hmm. or, I mean, you know, people de- do need to be in custody. Um, and, but tell us from a perspective of the jail itself, um, that's not a hundred percent of the people, correct? No, 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 absolutely not. Um, you know, from my humble perspective, I truly believe that, um, you know, the majority of individuals that I would say all the individuals that we've had in custody really have experienced some crisis or trauma themselves, right? Whether that be childhood trauma, you know, what whatever that might look like. Um, uh, many, many of the individuals in custody deal with, you know, substance use uh, disorders and issues where, you know, they may or may not be ready for treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that maybe, and these are general numbers, like I said, I haven't been in that role uh, since last year I moved on, but, you know, generally I would say about a quarter of that population in jail, and there's, uh, when I was back there, I don't know what the numbers are now, but it was around 400 people on any given day, Um, you know, about a quarter of that population was actively on psychotropic medications, and that could be something from an antidepressant all the way something to an antipsychotic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and that's just, you know, the population that we were able to get to, you know, there's lots of requests and lots of demands in custody in terms of treatment, and we are very under-resourced, and our staffing is incredibly low, and it's it's a little bit of a point of contention across the board around whose responsibility it is to pay for those services, right? Yeah. 
But there's absolutely individuals that, in my experience, and I'll only speak for myself, that I came across in custody who had committed some horrific crimes that do need to be in a secure setting. What that looks like, whether that's a prison or a jail, you know, that's neither here nor there. But what I really do believe is if the people that we could actually provide support and services to, for example, you know, people are homeless and on the street and using drugs and, oh, you want me as a homeless outreach worker to go stabilize them? Well, the solution to homelessness is housing. Right. Give us a home. We can absolutely step in and wrap around services and support somebody and get them stable. But without meeting those basic needs of individuals and in Santa Cruz and in California in general, housing is incredibly expensive. If you're living off of Social Security and you get about twelve hundred dollars a month, that's you. you, How do you survive? Right. Mm -hmm. So but if we could actually have individuals in custody who were there for, you know, because of issues that could have maybe uh, kind of more societal issues, Mm -hmm. right, that have led them to do certain things that get them into custody. If we were actually really able to have a better uh, safety net for um, for everybody in our community, I believe that we could really lower those numbers. If we really had appropriate treatment and not just like you know going for for 30 days and we're going to reassess you and if you need to stay here longer but it's you know it's really in-depth treatment people aren't going to make major changes in a month or two stabilizing at a program and be able to come back and have a completely different life we need to really provide long-term in-depth treatment and support supported housing all these things for folks to be successful on the outside And if we did that and really just focused on keeping people that are a true risk to the community and to others, you know, that have really hurt people in a secure setting, then maybe within those settings, we could then also actually provide some treatment and some um, opportunities to engage in services that might maybe actually help those folks a little bit better as well. Because the idea of um, rehabilitation in jails in prison is um, incredibly daunting when you think, you know, outside of jail, we we want to work at having a trauma-informed system, right? And we've been doing that work for years, mm-hmm. but then we have our staff that are housed within jails that are trauma-inducing, not only right, for right. the clients, but all of the staff that work there as well. And it's just, it's really hard to, to negotiate yeah. that conflict. And that's the kind of um, theme that I've been talking a lot about, particularly with the pandemic and architecturally, these facilities mm-hmm. are not made for humans to be in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think if we humanized uh, the whole aspect, and as an example, you just talked about 25% of the people could be out of jail in, in mm-hmm. long-term care, uh, mm-hmm. supportive housing, as an example. Um, mm-hmm. And then that would leave um, the rest of the individuals to get some really uh, intensive care um, in terms of their own issues and why they created, you know, such unsafe uh, conditions for um, the community at large. Well, well, and Barbara, the other thing, though, is like that's just 25 percent that have self-identified with mental health issues. Right. Right? right. And I mean, there's a whole other population of youth and young adults in the jail who are gang affiliated who will never ask for mental health services. And those are the youth that grew up in our system Mm -hmm. (laughs) and our children's behavioral health system and our juvenile probation system that we failed to serve. Exactly. And you have now 
come out of the jails, <laughs> right? We, we gave you pardon. Yeah. We pardoned you got, out of that system. I got out. <laughs> <laughs> and now, um, and tell us, is that one of the reasons you went into the youth system as a way to kind of think about getting to the core issues of yeah. um, trying to help young people so they never have to face that next system? Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of, I'll get to that in one second. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in my own professional journey, like I really felt that I wanted to become that supervisor and become that manager. So I had, so that I was a voice at the table where change really could happen, right? Mm-hmm. And throughout my journey, Barbara, I have struggled to be seen and to say like, here I am and I'm qualified. And part of that is also my own self-doubt. within those systems and within the court system and within like, you know, working so closely with law enforcement. And one of those things is, you know, I have a history of loved ones of mine being in those same jails. Right. Right. And, and I almost felt like early on, I'm like, are they going to find out who I am? Like, I need to hide. I need to make sure that they don't know who I was connected to, you know, but actually, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, the flip side of that is that gives me perspective and experience. right? Right. And so, yeah, you know, as you remember at the beginning of this, we were talking about how I started my career in children's mental health. And when I came back in 2006 and started working in the adult system, that was only because there wasn't a position in children's that I was able to be hired for. And so I found myself over the last 13 years, like I really did apply for some jobs down there and never really uh, was accepted back. And I felt like it was because certain people didn't want me back at that table because I have a strong, loud voice and I advocate and I hold myself and others accountable and I'm transparent and I hold others, other people transparent at, uh, along with our systems, right? right? We work off of taxpayer money. We do not have the opportunity to do a um, mediocre job when we are dealing with people's lives. And, um, So, you know, at the end of this, there was an opportunity at the end of the year last year that there was actually a supervisor that um, was doing kind of my forensic role or this forensic role in the juvenile setting, right? So there was a position that oversaw our juvenile hall facility and the clinicians that we have housed there. And the probation department also has an evening center where we have staff housed there to support youth in the community. And then we also do um, outpatient probation uh, or outpatient therapy for referrals from probation. And um, it didn't really even cross my mind. I mean, that was like my dream job that I always wanted. And um, until I really started talking with my husband and my family, and I was like, I'm fried on the position that I'm currently in. It's completely not manageable. There's way too much on my plate. And it's, I can't do it anymore. And I just felt completely just like I was drowning and like my heart was just breaking. And this opportunity came up and I said, well, what if I did demote from being a manager to a supervisor? What's the worst that could happen? You know, we're, we're privileged enough that we can afford that pay and cut. And so I really decided to do it because I felt like it kind of felt like an old partner. I wasn't sure where we meant, where we really meant to be. (laughs) I wanted to go back and revisit that and really see, is this truly still what my passion was? And after so many years, having had the experience that I have, I felt like I could really come into that position and support some, um, some systems change and really kind of work on fostering that relationship between our juvenile probation department and our children's behavioral health system because in all honesty some of that um, partnership had kind of um, 
dwindled over the years, I believe, with a lack of intentional partnering and collaboration, you know. So I'm back in the juvenile system with children's behavioral health. And, you know, children's behavioral health is incredibly different than adults. It's um, the idea of coming back to work with youth and seeing and hearing from my clinicians that work directly with them, like those little successes or the big successes that they have. There's so much more hope with youth. Yes. From my perspective, then with adults who've kind of learned their ways and it's a little bit harder to, um, you know, get adults on a different path unless they're really, really engaged. And, in wanting and the to resources do that. for adults. And let's just talk a little bit about the funding for mm-hmm. adults when and I don't think people understand that when people go into jail, they right. they lose their benefits right. that they need for the service. And, and what that does, it really impacts institutions uh, like the, the county systems or the private institutions who are doing, because, you know, uh, many of the services in jails have been privatized. Um, mm-hmm. So it comes out of the general fund of the county and depending on how much money they have has an impact. So, Absolutely. you know, I've always felt that, that that's like the wrong direction. If, if anything, you know, you want to continue the benefits for people when they're in jail to be able to provide that kind of care like individuals like yourself um, mm-hmm. And so I just found find that, you know, we're punishing people for being in jail and they're getting punished again because they're not getting the treatment that they need because of the funding level that because you talked several times about not having enough funding. And part of that right. is that there's no federal funding for or when people are incarcerated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, their Medi-Cal benefits will turn off and Social Security benefits will turn off if they're more if they're there for more than 30 days or if they're on there on the first of the month. Exactly. And, you know, that's what we also in the county jail, we had employed a, a jail discharge planner. And he's been in that position for like about 15 years as well. And he really is responsible for that, ensuring that those folks get referred to the programs, that the minute that they get out of custody, we get that printout from custody, that we advise Social Security, that we advise our medical, you know, so that we can like get those resources and benefits started back up quickly. But yeah, it's like a start and go process all the time for people just to keep their basic benefits intact, right? Right. And, and so and I that's think kind of the same for people that are out of custody that don't have law, you know, criminal justice involvement. It's not, right. you know, it's like people have to stay on top of that depending on what their financial status is. And that's just another barrier for people in accessing care. Exactly. And I think people also, what you pointed out was really good. And I think even our partners don't always understand that of like the work that we're doing in custody, we don't get to reimburse that and receive, you know, funds back for it. It's all funding that just goes out the door, you know, it's yeah. not something. And so that takes a toll. If you look at it from that perspective and we're community behavior health, And don't get me wrong, I believe that folks in custody need those services, and I'm not saying that they don't. But is community behavioral health the right person to be paying for that in custody when we are always struggling with funding issues? Whereas other entities might have an easier time going to our, you know, to the board and asking for general funds to pay for these services. Well, I I do think it is a federal, um, you know, issue. um, And that if that federal... um, you know, the Medi-Cal was turned on and benefits were turned on for people in jail, um, you know, you would have um, much, many more options for people to be yeah. served. We're children and, you know, you're now mm-hmm. doing children's services. Mm-hmm. Why don't you share with us a little bit about the work that you're doing now, Jasmine? 
Yeah, I'm really excited about the work that I'm doing now because I feel like I've come full circle in my professional journey. And so I've kind of settled into our children's behavioral health system. And one of the huge drawing factors for me was that it's been a pretty big shift in the leadership in our department. And for the first time ever, we have a director who I think you're familiar with, Lisa Gutierrez-Wang, and she is a strong, fierce Chicana who is now leading us. And for me, being in leadership, having a woman that I can identify with that's my director, and for all of our staff, it's been a complete culture change and shift. So, you know, we really are committed to trying to improve um, I feel like we kind of need to do a rebranding of who we are generally, right, in our community and really let people understand, like, what is our task? What is our mandate? You know, we aren't mental health for everybody in our community, you know. Um, anyway, so being able to be back with the youth and supporting the staff that are directly Working with those youth has been amazing. And, you know, one thing that I didn't highlight before that I want to say right now, because it's consistent across the board, is that the clinicians that we are hiring to work, whether it be in the county jail or in the juvenile justice system, you have to be very, very intentional about who you're hiring for those positions, because not all clinical staff have the skill or the desire to work so closely with law enforcement jurisdictions or probation, right? Yeah. And so I felt incredibly blessed that both in the adult setting and now in my in the children's setting, I have staff that this is exactly what they want to do. And what that translates into is really committed, dedicated service to the youth and families that we work with, whether it's in custody or out. And our goal is to really try to improve our delivery system so that youth we're really holding those youth, no matter if they're in custody, if they're in our community, if they're placed out of town or out of county, and really trying to ensure that, you know, when they're back with us, that we immediately pick them up and that we're really supporting them and their families and doing the work that they need. And our, you know, I mean, these kids and just in general, our kids in our community and all communities are suffering right now. Really, you know, this is really unprecedented times. And so, it's also put our system in a place where we haven't been ever, right, in terms of completely doing telehealth. Um, and it's, it's definitely highlighted some areas that um, we need to really dive into and address in terms of really supporting the youth and the work that we're doing and our staff in partnership um, with probation. And, um, you know, that's not always easy, but I think that we have an opportunity. And because I have that perspective from my manager role in the adult system and now in our juvenile hall, it's a much smaller facility. I think since I've been here, we've had no more than 15 youth ever, which is, you know, that's when I great. used to work, yeah, that's back great. in 2006, I think we had like 70 youth or something, yeah, right? right? And those youth that are there are really there for really, really serious charges, and or our youth that our system, well, our system has failed all of those youth, but or our youth that are part of the child welfare system and don't have a home yeah. and are needing placement. And to me, that's just heartbreaking. It's like you know, foster, that care, this is, foster care yeah, children. This is the best that we can do for our kiddos. It's yeah. just really heartbreaking. So kind of coming back into the juvenile justice system for me has been full circle. And what I found is when I left kids and went to the adult system, then we started serving those kids. <laughs> in the adult system. And now that I'm right. back in kids, we are serving the kids of those kids that we served as children. So now and this like is the, the next grandchildren. generation and the yeah, next so generation. These are, 
so I've been able to see three generations now. And when I'm talking to my staff and I'm like, I'm like, wait, who, who's that? And who's the parents? And I'm like, wow, that yeah. was the youth that I worked with and really making me feel like for us as a system, like we're graduating our youth into these systems. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to really break that cycle? What do we have to offer to really change the trajectory of the lives of these youth? And it's hard when youth are removed from their houses, removed from their families. And some of those families are really amazing, loving families. And some of them really struggle with a lot of poverty and a lot of addiction and a lot of just really major issues. And, you know, unless we really take more of an approach of wrapping ourselves around the families and really being family focused, how can we ever just really expect a youth to us to wrap around that youth and provide that support, but not doing it with the family there isn't going to be any change there, right? Right. Like we really need to think about how we can most effectively utilize our resources, especially now during this pandemic. You know, we're we're understaffed. We, you know, we can't hire more staff necessarily. And so with our current staff, we need to really do what is most effective and kind of trim all of that fat around the edges for now, right? Because we have a mandate and we have to meet that mandate and we have to do that well. But we're in unprecedented times and our communities, families, youth are struggling. But you know what? So are our social workers. Yes. Yes. And so are we as professionals. And I try to be transparent about that with my staff so that they can see that their struggles are not unique, that we are all having them and normalizing that in this very unnormal time. Right. Yeah. I mean, how how lucky uh, are we to have a leader like you, Jasmine, in that system? understanding and you know just hearing the the struggles you've had as a um, professional as a latina chicana you know going through that uh, as from a system you know and um so i just want to um really highlight how proud i am of the work that you're doing and really looking at how to um stop that graduation uh, mm-hmm. process absolutely from uh, you know a foster care situation or having families that have addiction mm-hmm. and, and we're going to have a lot more pressure on these families um mm-hmm. particularly from a financial point of view but i have a lot of hope that as we change our political um environment which um you know i really am um hopeful for that that's going to give um some financial um maybe hope for some of these families um, mm-hmm. who are hardworking, but um, aren't not meeting, um, you know, the needs. And then you have the whole dynamic of what happens with trauma in the family. Um, right. It leads to some of, uh, of these incidents with our kids. Um, and so I just really want to thank you, Jasmine. And, um, you know, having uh, watched you in your career, I am so proud of you. And uh, I foresee you have another decade or so of giving in this area. And so um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next in your career. Um, so on behalf of uh, Healthcare Untold, one of our greatest heroes here uh, is Jasmine Nahara, licensed clinical social worker in the Santa Cruz County area. Yeah. Any last comments for you, Jasmine? You know, Barbara, that means so much of to me, your words. And, um, you know, I really wouldn't be here without strong Chicana women in my life who have taken that effort to really focus in on me. And so that will forever make me want to do the same for the young folks and women in our community doing the same work. I really love my perspective. I feel like it's incredibly unique and I really value the relationships that I've built through my career. And those relationships are not 
always with folks that I agree with, right? right? But those are relationships that you have to foster and develop develop to really make systems change. And, um, you know, just I do think that I'm at a different point in my life now where I'm kind of looking ahead at the next 10 years. In 10 years, our kiddos will be out of the house and in college and, you know, my husband will be retired. And it's kind of like, I know that this is what I want to do for a couple more years to really support the system. And I believe that I could help create some positive change and really bring people together. And it's time for us to kind of think about, you know, this is this is what I want, but I feel like there's something else out there that I could do that could be, bring different change. And just the last thing, you know, two, two, a couple more things. One is that I'm really proud because over the last um, couple of years here in our county, we had a gender and justice committee that we did a lot of work to talk about women's experiences mm-hmm. in the adult system. And that turned into a task force. And I was just... Um, I was just accepted onto that task force as the Latinx representative for Santa Cruz County. And I'm super excited to bring my perspective from the adult world and then now from the juvenile world. And I have a real male orientation towards criminal justice and women do mm -hmm. not get that kind of focus. So I'm so glad. No. Yeah. We really need to focus on the women in our, in our systems. And, you know, the final thing that I'll say is, you know, it wasn't until recently that I felt like I had time to really do some other work outside of um, my, you know, 40-hour job. And, um, you know, I really wanted to join a board. And really, I specifically sought out um, Monarch Services, which is an organization here in our uh, county that provides uh, services to individuals that have been affected by domestic violence, uh, sex trafficking, assault. And, um, And so I've been on that board for almost two years. I'm currently serving as the board chair. And I specifically sought out Monarch Services because when I was 17 and 18, I was in a violent relationship and I went to them went back then they were the fence other mujeres and they really supported me and they helped me and I always remembered that and I always want to be an advocate for our youth and women who are in those situations and really you know Monarch does amazing work um, and really meets the needs in our county and um, you know I feel just incredibly proud to be able to support this agency who unfortunately, has had their numbers continue to rise over the, yes. the um, this past year, right? Yes. So there's a lot of great work going on in our community, and I really just want to continue to be a part of that and really bring folks together, specifically for youth-serving agencies, but across the board to really, you know, we're all a piece of the puzzle, right? And we all fit together. And if we actually collaborate and co- coordinate and communicate intentionally, then we can really identify where those gaps are and then be able to fill those gaps so that there's a true network and system and safety net for all of our youth and families in our communities. Well, that's a great way to end this podcast. And I'm, again, I'm so proud of you, Jasmine, and you keep that work up and uh, we're going to follow you through your career. And I'll, we'll make sure to have another podcast in that next uh, uh, pathway that you take. And I'm sure it's going to be a, a wonderful one. And um, I just want to send blessings to you and your families uh, to your uh, and all your tias. And uh, thank you so much for spending the time with us on Healthcare Untold. Jasmine Nahera, licensed clinical social worker and champion in Santa Cruz County. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Thank you, Barbara.